Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. So last time we dealt with the unofficial defeat of the Danish and their withdrawal from the Jutland Peninsula. With their war effort in disarray, the Catholics reigned supreme, at least on the mainland of Europe, and, and Wallenstein got rewarded for his service. And before we get to the final piece of the war, as in peace treaty, we need to cover some imperial politics, more specifically the Mulhausen Electoral Congress. The Catholic League, despite their name, was concerned about the church lands being restored. Like I mentioned last time, there was calls for the church to get their land back from the Protestants. Maximilian was afraid of the power of Wallenstein and Ferdinand, and was afraid that the emperor would drag them into the war with the Dutch based on religious tenets. And that would also drag him into the war, and again, war was expensive, and he was incurring millions of florins or talers in debt. Many of his officers were also defecting to the Imperials or just getting better offers there. So he was... I mean, he had plenty of officers, it's just he was on the back foot. The balance of the Catholic world was changing, and it was shifting back to the Emperor's forces versus the League's. Whereas before, the League was the powerful force that the Emperor relied on, now he didn't necessarily need them, since he had Wallenstein and his growing military. By 1629, Wallenstein had three times the men that Tilly did, and he didn't even have to consult Maximilian to do what he needed to do. Which they did because cohesion, but legally there was no obligation. It also probably didn't help the rivalry between Tilly and Wallenstein. Again, they could work professionally, but it's probably really rough on a personal level. One primary thing that was happening during this time period, starting around 1625, there was increasing complaints about the military burden that was being placed upon the commoners and nobility alike. They also were complaining about the behavior of the men, see looting, pillaging, general undisciplined activities that were going on whenever they were in cities and the like. Cities and the like. Most of these complaints were actually technically towards Wallenstein, because he was the bigger figure, but Tilly's men were just as bad, and Maximilian's men were sort of just as bad as his in terms of discipline in certain cases, which is unfair to Wallenstein, because he was getting all the flack for stuff that he wasn't doing. And to control, you know, 50 to 100,000 men is not easy, especially when you're not there, because there's no easy communication this time period. You had, what, messenger birds, guys on horseback, maybe boats. We, there was no, you know, messages we have today, cell phones, te telegrams, even anything like that. These complaints got big enough that three of the spiritual electors, which belong to some of the more church lands in the HRE, they sent a formal complaint to it, and they would represent other estates in the upcoming Congress if they couldn't make it themselves. This Congress was meant to resolve the question of the Palatine, issues of the Danish War, and the balance of the victorious Catholics and the factions within. It started on October 18th, 1629, and lasted until November 12th, 1629, with electors from Mainz and Saxony being there in person, and other parts of the empire were sent their representatives in their place. It was the largest gathering of electors and princes in the last several years, which meant it was really the first time that there was widespread debate and criticism on Habsburg policy. Maximilian had been a critic of Wallenstein, but he had also been a beneficiary of the victory in terms of loot, glory, etc., so his word wasn't taken as seriously, and he had actually backed off criticism for a reason I will cover later, along with a few others. I mean, funny enough, he even had some of his scribes investigate potential claims that Bavaria and his electorate had on Brandenburg, which amounted to nothing, but the fact that he was investigating claims was showing his ambition, at least. 
One reason he kept quiet was because he didn't want to rock the boat until his status as Elector of Palatine was given to him as a hereditary title, not just as a title that would go back to the family after his death. He actually got one step closer on that after Brandenburg recognized his claim in May 1627 after they signed a treaty with him during the later part of the Danish War. He still needed Ferdinand's final permission before it could be changed to a hereditary title, which was the primary reason for his silencing of the complaints, since Wallenstein was the favorite of the emperor, and he didn't want to, you know, insult the guy who was the favorite of the guy you need the permission of. He criticized some of the subordinates of Wallenstein for their behavior and for other things they did, but he didn't go against Ferdinand's political agenda and actually supported it in order to suck up to the boss. And by taking the emperor aside during this council, he was rewarded. He was granted the hereditary title of the Palatine, despite the objections of Brandenburg and Saxony. He also released the Occupation of Upper Austria, which, as a reminder, is what he got in order to cover his war debts that the Habsburgs owed him. He released it as a trade for the lands in Eastern and Upper Palatine on February 22nd, 1628. So he got more lands out of that. Well, not more land, but he got different land out of that instead. And the Habsburgs got their land back. They also promised if he ever lost his lands, the emperor would owe 1.5 million florins in war restitution, which is a lot of money, which I don't even think the Habsburg had at that time. Again, the transfer of these lands did not make other nobility happy, seeing that their liberties could potentially be abused if someone could suck up to the emperor to get what they want. Granted, the, they were enemies, but the fact that the emperor was willing to give such favor to people who, while they did do service, that is not to be underestimated. They also were going beyond the usual reward that one would get for something like this. This congress did help resolve a lot of internal matters, at least temporarily which would stabilize the situation, especially as there are still more external enemies to fight. The policy of the Habsburgs of personal loyalty for land and that, instead of paying money, was paying off. Again, people were getting pissed off about it, but they were small fry compared to making these major warlords, you know, happy. Back on the Danish front, with the loss of the mainland holdings which was the Jutland Peninsula, Christian was forced to hold at the Danish islands. However, the winter of 1627 to 1628 was mild, so Christian was able to raid imperial possessions and retake the Fulmarn Islands, capturing 80 boats in the process that were being sent there to take imperial troops to other parts of the peninsula. The raids encouraged common revolts and uprisings in imperial territory, like Dittmarsen, Holstein, parts of Jutland and Nordstrand, where one-third of the 9,000 population joined the Danish, or at least rose up in arms. Christian attempted to get a foothold in the peninsula at Wolgast with 6,000 men, which is on the Pomeranian coast. Wallenstein, having been forced to break off a siege by the Danish earlier, took 8,000 men and trapped the Danish king and his men where he landed. But Christian was able to withdraw back to his fleet, and his men put up a good fight using the nearby bogs to their advantage. Around 1,000 men died and another... 1,100 were captured, but the rest of them escaped back to the boats, and the Christian king was safe. Well, and the Danish king was safe. Christian king? Well, he was a Christian king, I guess. Yeah. He later returned in the spring of 1629 with around 10,000 men, landing in the eastern Jutland, with the intention of meeting up with around 5,000 British and Dutch troops. Wallenstein was dealing with other military matters at the time, but he was able to dispatch men to try to entrap the Danish king once again by June 6th. Christian, seeing the writing on the wall, was able to sign a peace treaty before that became needed. 
They were signed at Lubeck, and they were a modified treaty based on the talk that had been opened January 11th, 1629. The terms, which had been encouraged by Wallenstein, who was eager for peace, stated that the Danish would get back all their conquered territory without compensation at the cost of Denmark not holding any of their Lower Saxony territories or any ambitions towards Lower Saxony. So in theory, this would mean the Danish would be an ally against the Swedish because the HRE was nice enough to not make them pay or do anything nasty for this peace. The Swedish were a growing military power, and next season, there's going to be a couple episodes just for them, as they would later become an empire during the 17th century, late 16th, early 17th century. The main reason Ferdinand was okay with these terms was because there was a current crisis in Mantua, which I will be covering in the start of next season, most likely. So he just wanted to get this war resolved as quickly as possible, which again spoke to the practical nature of Ferdinand that seems to come out more and more as I read. Christian agreeing to this treaty was seen as a betrayal by the rest of the Hague Alliance, who were already a shaky alliance that just collapsed in the face of this. Cardinal Richelieu of France... Cardinal Richelieu, for those of you who don't know, is one of the main antagonists of the Three Musketeers... And he was a major military and political figure in France during the 17th century, who will be mentioned in this podcast. Don't you worry. Once we get to France's active involvement, that will certainly come up. Anyway, back to him. Cardinal Richelieu called him a coward, although the Danish saw it as a godsend, as the war was an expense on manpower and money. So the fact that they're losing the war just meant that pulling out was best for the long term. The Danish also didn't mind going against Protestant solidarity, because they didn't really see it as a primary motive before. It was a means to an end, which I think goes along with my idea that this war, despite its claims of being a religious war, which no doubt it was, but it's overstated a bit. Influential, the religion was versus actual imperial and just and intercountry politics. But with the signing of this treaty, the war was officially over and the Protestants were once again beaten. The Dutch and the Spanish were still going at it, but the Danish and Hasburg War was over. The Danish showed promise at first, especially because they were known as a military power, they had money backing, theoretically, Krishna was a good leader, but major mistakes in battle, like Christian going to the rear to organize people and stuff, leaving no commander in charge, and other mistakes like the quality of Tilly and Wallenstein's made the war very hard to fight. There also was the increase in the size of the military of the Catholics, which would balloon to over 100,000 in the coming years. So this war became a bit of a war of attrition at times, and the Danish could not attrition as hard as the Catholics could. This did not come at a cheap cost. The Catholics were taking bigger and bigger debts. So this wasn't necessarily the best long-term idea, but in the short term, it was helping them win the war. And this is more of a me thing, but the funny thing I noticed is as the Danish defeated Wallenstein Rose in the status, and again, I covered him in detail in earlier episodes, so read, listen to those if you want to get a recap on those. But while Tilly won battles, and he deserves credit for that, Wallenstein really helped create a larger military, which became a pattern in the century coming up. The military began to get bigger and bigger across all factions. And even after the war, militaries would begin to bloat or grow over 100,000 men, depending on your opinion, which had been the largest they'd seen in a long time in Europe at the very least. Factions like the Ottomans and such might have had armies that size, but the lack of professional soldiery and reliance on mercenaries meant large armies were very expensive. And don't worry, I will have an episode covering a bunch of that stuff which is going to be based on my final senior paper that I did in college, so that should be fun. But give the overview image. The Empire had won three wars, effectively. They were stabilized internally for now, with minor squabbles, but nothing major. 
But the enemies of the Catholics were still out there, and the HRE's Catholic allies were still fighting wars against Protestants, so the continent was still on fire. Just not as on fire as much. I want to thank you for listening in, and I hope you are enjoying this. Next time, we will start on Season 3. We'll deal with the aftermath of the war and other European politics, which aren't going to be important to mention, as it's still a nightmare mess of politics. I might I might be taking an extra week to read up, build a script, well, not a script, but an outline of just how my episodes are going to be organized. So, heads up on that. Again, there'll be setup episodes at the beginning, which I hope you guys enjoy, because I enjoy doing setup episodes, and especially one of them that I've been looking forward to that I mentioned earlier. Social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3decot at gmail.com. Reminder that at Patreon, if you wish to support me, then please review and spread the word, and I'll see you guys next time.